You're listening to It's Real Life Podcast. Real hope. Real love. Real Real life. Oh, hello, hello, and welcome to It's Real Life Podcast. I'm one of the hosts of the illustrious dynamic duo. My name is Chris Davis. And I am Deborah F. Bell. So excited to be here to have this conversation with our guests. This is going to be an amazing time. So we ready? I think we're ready. So one of the things that we want to kind of share with you all is that we're in the middle of a series of conversations with leaders and the title of this series is Leaders in Distress. And so we're, we're talking and gleaning wisdom from leaders and those who impact leaders to kind of glean some of their wisdom and insight. And we have with us one of the most amazing individuals that I know that engages leaders on some deep levels. And so I want to introduce to you all, and I'm not going to even share her story and steal any of her thunder, the Kamish Nunley. Hello, everyone. Thank you guys for bringing me on today. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So Kamish, share with our audience who you are, what you do, who you do it for. I mean, I could really, I got tons of adjectives to describe the work you do, but I'm gonna let you do that. I am first and foremost, a mother of three amazing children and a wife of a husband who's very supportive and encouraging. And so by far, that is who I am at my core. My trade is that of a licensed mental health counselor, certifying in trauma and different type of trauma-informed therapies. Most recently, my venture has been to work with leaders in the community, more specifically pastoral leadership. And I'm actually working on my first book, set to come out hopefully in 2021, on self-care as an extension of ministry work. So that's who I am. Wow. So there's an organization that you have that the title itself is amazing. I'm going to make sure I get this correct. Is it Healing Your Hidden Hurts? Yes, sir. Healing Your Hidden Hurts. Absolutely. Okay. Healing. Okay. So can you unpack just how you came up with that title and then just the work you do with that? Absolutely. So we started back in 2009. And when I came up with the title, initially, I didn't understand the underpinnings of such a title. But I meant it at that time just to help people unearth and discover things that they didn't know about themselves. But as I've done this work, I've come to learn that it really does stand for all those family of origin wounds and people that largely go unnoticed, unchecked and unhealed as a result of a lack of self-awareness or even uh, more specifically destigmatization in the community surrounding emotional and psychological health. So it's kind of morphed into a deeper meaning. And so I'm very happy that I chose it early on. So having an organization with that kind of title, the first thing I'm thinking is, what have you been through that led you to that? Because often we become wounded healers. Yes. It is out of our own 
experience our own pain, our own hurt often, that we open those wounds and share from that experience with others that they may be healed. Mm-hmm. And I love that term wounded healers. It definitely applies in my story. I believe I, I like to talk to people about how I went through a prepping stage as a child <laughs> with different family dysfunctions in and around me. And it was uncanny the amount of time where, you know, I would spend with family members, close family members, you know, just kind of listening to them, not even understanding the level of dysfunction that existed not always focused on the impact that it was having on me, but also readily understanding that, you know, I did act out as a result of those things. I believe it was my prepping or training phase of life that kind of led me into this work where I didn't know at the time I was being my gift in this, in this area uh, was being honed. And at a very young age, I found God and He's kind of been my guiding light in terms of, you know, just being an active listener and and listening to people as well as processing my own pain. So back when I initially chose this as a field of study, I was a recovering sexual abuse survivor. I had endured abuse for about 16 years of my life. And in college, the first thing I went into was political science and realized quickly that that was not (laughs) the area for me. And it wasn't until I actually met my tutor, who's now my husband, my second year of college, that I realized that I had a gift in the work of psychological studies. So I sort of went into that and developed a passion for it, as well as, you know, sought out my own treatment to overcome the residual effects of, of abuse and trauma. And so in 2009, I was actually watching a show on Oprah and she was dealing directly with sexual abuse and sexual assault. And I had a, an epiphany at that point and said, oh, my God, that's what I have to do. And so it was really becoming about repurposing the pain that I went through to be able to reach out to those who have shared similar experiences with abuse. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. There's so many people in our audience who can identify with your experience. Immediately as you were talking, the other thing that came to mind is that people, women in particular, and I'm sure there may be some men who go through much of their life without even saying anything about the abuse that has happened to them. And for you to have experienced it for that extended period of time, getting to the place of being open to talk about it and to get help, how did that happen for you? It was a bit of a journey, as with any level of abuse or any level of psychological trauma. It was definitely a journey to be able to openly discuss it in a constructive or effective way. A lot of times I would share it with like close friends and things like that. And of course, talking with close friends about those things only kind of went so far because they weren't trained in this field. And so it really wasn't until my college years where I started to open up about not just being abused, but the residual after effects of what that was like for me, going through a degree of suicidality going through episodic depression or situational depression, and then developing a large degree of anxiety. And so it was those things that kind of opened my eyes to 
realizing that there was work that needed to be done. And I was more than willing at that point in my life to be able to take it on. Here's a question for you. You know, you use the word repurposing as it relates to the pain and your experiences. And I'm aware of the reality of how you in your work have married your faith and mental health, mm. which in this day and time is a challenging marriage. So can you talk a little bit about how you've done that and then maybe how that played a role in your perspective on repurposing pain? Absolutely. So I believe as humans, pain is a natural part of life. And what I was noticing largely is that our people, not just people who have been through abuse or trauma, but our people, African-Americans, church members and things like that were experiencing a, a large degree of pain, but it was going unaddressed. And a lot of times it became about how do I avoid the pain that I'm experiencing or have experienced in my life and cling a hold to something holy and amazing and things like that. And so noticing how, as W.E. Du Bois talks about quite often, the facades that get created in the Black church and the degree of suffering that pastors and leadership in the church was experiencing with growing rates of suicidality, burnout, all those things, leaving ministry. I realized that my true calling necessarily was into the church and helping them understand why counseling is important, why going through the pain to overcome the pain was absolutely necessary. In fact, God talks about how he uses the suffering in others to hone or, or perfect them in certain ways that they can then start to live out their purpose in life. And so when I think about repurposing pain, I just think about the healing process. While God didn't cause those things to happen to us early in life, my realization is that he very much can use those situations and help us to develop greater degrees of purpose in our present day lives. And I think you kind of actually kind of touched back on the topic because your work with pastors are literally individuals who are leaders in distress. And so when you think about the process of engaging them mm -hmm. and some of the ripple effects or the residual impact of the scenarios they find themselves in, all that goes into being a pastor in that setting can you talk about how you engage and how you help walk them through these processes? Many times I come as um, word of mouth to a lot of different pastors. But the first thing that I talk with them about is being a leader. It's very hard for us to do one specific thing, and that is lead ourselves, especially in the capacity of emotional and psychological well-being and realizing the degree of what's needed in that. And so after they understand that, yes, there needs to be a focus in on how I'm doing so I can secure my mask and make sure everybody else's mask is secured at the same time. I have to be able to go back in order to move forward. Many times we think that we can just kind of circumvent or time heals all wounds as long as I'm delivered. You know, sometimes people confuse deliverance with healing when they're two separate things. And so just helping them understand in order to really go through the journey of healing, self-awareness, self-intimacy and compassion, we have to be willing to look at those things that are causing us present day issues. 
a lot of times the attitude, especially from different parishioners, is that my pastor shouldn't have any problems. And so some of our work becomes about understanding, no, like you are human (laughs) in the same way that I am. And so if I cut you, you bleed. And so it's much the same within our mental and emotional health that we go through these things. And if we don't heal those things, they have the ability to come out in the way that we do pastoring, in the way that we understand how to pastor or even love. So I can go on for days. I kind of want to go back to something that you said. You said there's a difference between deliverance and healing. Mm. And I think that was a very good distinction to make Mm -hmm. because there is a responsibility once we are delivered to walk it out. And I think that's the space where healing comes in. And I think that for many people, they feel like I've been delivered. That's it. I'm good to go. I can just live my life. And that is not how any of that works. (laughs) No, no. I I always tell people that, you know, deliverance is, I think about my children. I have two uh, daughters and one's a year younger. And when she was fairly young, she would bite the older daughter And she would usually do it like in the middle of the night. She'd run in her room, bite her, run out. (laughs) And then it will leave my older daughter crying and things like that. And so I kind of described to people, you know, delivering my daughter from the bite meant putting up a gate for my younger daughter not to be able to get out. Now, once she's been delivered, my older daughter now has to heal both from the fear of my younger daughter coming back in, but also from the wounds and the scars that that, you know, transgression of sorts provided for her. And so if we fail to kind of look at healing from that light, we have a tendency to take on a level and a degree of infection from not truly healing. And the infection sometimes comes in the frame of the facade, right? Or comes in the frame of those mostly unhealed, unchecked versions of ourselves that go off and do these things that are totally contradictory to the what you know the Bible was telling us. And so when I give it to them in doses like that, it becomes about self-compassion versus condemnation. So coming through the kinds of things that you experienced at a young stage in your life, and now you have daughters, Mm -hmm. how do you manage, I'm going to call it the anxiety that may come to protect them? Absolutely. I short of becoming a helicopter parent. (laughs) I keep my daughters, my family, well informed about their emotional and their mental and psychological health. And that means I create different teachable moments for my children. I refuse to live my life out of fear of dot, dot, dot. But I feel like if I keep them informed, then should it happen you know, they will be more readily able to speak up. For me, I didn't speak up until I was 15, 16 years old. So for that number of years, these symptoms were building up beneath the surface and causing me to act out in certain ways. And so the hope is that we don't put them in situations where anything like that is able to happen, but we also can't shield them from their life's journey. And we all will have a degree of hurt and suffering. And so should they go through that, I'm confident that I'll be able to walk them through the healing stages 
of what that relents. Well, I was going to say I was blessed and honored to participate in one of the cohorts of the ministry that deals with shepherds. And I'll let you unpack that a little bit. But you touched on something with yourself and how you engage your daughters and how you help them navigate fear, which is a very real reality. And without giving too much away, there was exercise as a part of the cohort that really dealt with it head on. Mm. And so maybe you can kind of speak to that as well. Absolutely. So First Shepherds is the name of the organization. And it was developed, again, as a result of the large amounts of stigma that went on in the churches and the degree of suffering in our pastors. But what you're speaking to is something that is well known in the psychotherapy world, which is a process called externalization. Learning how to see yourself apart from the issues that you have. And more distinctively with regards to how it relates to pastors is learning how to see ourselves apart from fear and understanding the difference between fears, goals and agendas for your life and God's purpose for you. And so understanding that fear is a tool of the enemy. It comes to kill, steal and destroy. Anytime you come up under the vices of fear, you're typically paralyzed in nature. And so it completely distorts your perception of who you are and what you're capable of doing. And it allows you to start to set these conditions that reinforce your level of okayness. But God says that we are perfectly loved by him, that we are loved unconditionally. And so why on the earth realm do we feel like we have to have these conditions in order to be okay or be loved and set up our lives according to the mantras of fear instead of listening to God and the lessons that he has provided us. You know, he talks about it. I think it's in Isaiah 41. How long will you go before you realize that I'm here? I am God. I am your shield. I'm your protector. And I will give you peace. And so a large amount of the work that I do with pastors is helping them to shed that weight of anxiety and and fear. Fear can be completely debilitating. And so I see the significance of addressing that particular emotion, because all of us have different levels of things that cause fear. And then we respond in how we encounter people, how we encounter situations from behind that that veil, I'll say, of fear. The question that I have, the work that you're doing, and I won't limit it just to pastors, but even for yourself, what kinds of things have you had to put in place so that you combat fear? So because I I have a decent understanding of the inner workings of the Bible, and I understand in the Bible that God mentions fear not over 365 times, maybe 80, 64 to 80 of those verses is him telling us not to fear. And so that deepens my insight into walking in truth and understanding that fear is unnatural. So anything unnatural that is not given to us by God, we have control over it. And so because of that knowledge and that wisdom, I'm able to take that into the clinical parts of the work that I do and understand that any time that fear arises from, for me, there's a lie being conceived of some sorts. And so my mind immediately goes to naming what the fear is, 
uprooting what the fear is connected to, which is sometimes usually those early life dysfunctions or even experiences that have created fear or trauma, uprooting that, and then understanding that it's deceptive. It's not telling me the truth. And so I choose to believe on in that moment, you know, after prayer and consecration and all of those things, what God says about any one particular situation. And it really does bring into account the whole idea of surrendering our own levels of understanding in favor of God's because we can get caught up in the things that we see from day to day and not realize that God is speaking all these truths to us, but just because we can't see them, it's there. And we have to choose to believe on that versus the things that fear tries to present for us. Oh my God. (laughs) That right there. True. We gather our own perspective on truth from so many different places, as opposed to understanding what God says about, as you say, whatever that issue is. And when we don't have the right perspective on what truth is, it can cause us to become completely opposite to who God has purposed and ordained for us to be. That is huge. And that's actually something that I talk about in my book where I call it the proverbium of fear, proverbium being the Greek form of proverb, where because fear is unnatural to us, it's a natural experience, it develops its own levels of wisdom according to its way of being. And so it's the antithesis of what God is showing us. So anything that fear is saying, it's the opposite of what God wants for us, right? When we learn the mantras, when we learn the proverbium of fear, we can readily distinguish between self in terms of who God purposed us to be and where fear is attempting to lead us. And a lot of times, I mean, if you think about the original sin and you go back to Adam and Eve, Satan being the voice of fear, right? And saying to you, I will give you everything that you want in this world. Or you can know everything that you want. And the only reason that God told you not to eat of this tree is because he doesn't want you to be as good as him. And and the lie in that moment was that we weren't already the most powerful being apart from anything in the world at that time. Right. Come on. He (laughs) He believed on the lie, which was fear creating its own set of proverbium. And as a result, we slipped into a depth of dysfunction where control and condition very much was birthed into the world. So what's the book? You, you mentioned book and we hadn't got there yet. So give us the title. There are people in the audience like, oh, she got a book? And that's what she talked about. What's the name of that book? <laughs> so the working title right now is Self-Care as an Extension of Ministry Work. Is it out yet? It's not out yet. Mid-2021 or is sometime mid 2021. So we need that book. So when the book comes out, know that you're coming back. (laughs) Like God is truly a blessing and provides so many blessings because I have a waiting list of people set to order the book and the book hasn't. (laughs) (laughs) That means you got to finish that thing, girl. (laughs) And a workings of God, I tell you what. Mm. Yes. So here's a question for you. First of all, 
at the end, we're going to have to figure out, like, how can we jump on this waiting list <laughs> and what that process is so we can invest. But we live in unparalleled times mm. in a number of ways. There are ways that each of us are being impacted by the political climate. We have kind of health dynamics that are impacting the globe that are either directly or indirectly mm-hmm. impacting us. How has that impacted you and how have you handled that? And how has it impacted your work? Mm. That's a good question. I think sometimes people believe that because you are in this field, you won't succumb to the normal issues that come as a result. So pandemics in and of themselves create different trauma symptoms like hypervigilance and depression and and anxiety. And so to couple that with the prevailing images that we see on TV with racial injustices, the inner workings of the current administration, it is difficult to maintain a level of stages where you're functioning optimally in your role or even just personally. So one of the things that you know, I learned early on is that there's just certain things that on certain days I cannot bear witness to in order to maintain my own sanity. And so when it starts to become too much, like I start to be overly irritable, overly hypervigilant. I told my husband the other day, watching a movie series and seeing a group of people interact and they don't have masks on, my first thought is, oh my God, like they're exposing themselves. Like, so that's the level of hypervigilance that stuff like this brings on. And so when it starts to get to that point, then I'm okay detaching. I'm okay with stepping back and saying, in this moment, I don't need to look at my phone. I don't need to know what's going on in the news. I need to focus on self-care. Self-care can be talking to my husband. It can be teaching my children. It can be anything that I feel like nourishes my soul. More recently, it's been my weight loss and bodybuilding journey. And if it becomes too much, I'll just go out into the garage and hit the gym and and I'm good. So one of the things that did inevitably happen for me was I picked up binge eating. And it happened towards the middle of the pandemic where we were forced to shelter in place and just change like that on a sudden level. I just thrust myself into comfort eating because as we were sheltering in place, people were reaching out, suffering to a large degree. And when you have that starfish heart where you want to help everyone, it's really hard sometimes to say no. And so when I realized the pattern that was creating itself, one, I learned how to say no, but two, I had to address the binge eating as it came. I think in a lot of ways, you are expressing the very same reality that the people you serve, mm-hmm. you know, live through and navigate and wrestle with, quite frankly. And I think that that's important for us to understand that we're not alone. Oftentimes, I think a tactic of the enemy is to make us feel like we're the only one on the planet, as Deborah had said, that is experiencing this. And it's just not the case. What are the blessings of the cohorts that you constructed with First Shepherds is that they became like a family, Right. And we kind of stayed in contact with each other and kind of kept mm-hmm. eyes and tabs on what everybody was doing. What do you think the impact of those kinds of units mm-hmm. is in during times like these? During times like these and times of heightened stress, it just 
fosters a sense of normalcy. It fosters a sense of understanding and, you know, helping you to see that you're not the only one that is suffering and that's freeing to a large degree. And it also helps you to learn how to walk in transparency. A lot of times with church leaders and such, the belief is that you have to hold a part of yourself back from congregants or or anyone. And, and so life becomes a lot of times about living life in the margins versus just being who you are. And so as I've done this work, we're now on our sixth cohort, which is amazing. <laughs> Amen. I've noticed how just processing through these things and having that family unit where pastors just feel liberated and comfortable to speak out about their stories. I just heard from one of our you know, biggest pastors here in Indiana talk about being ready to share his story and thanking First Shepherds for helping him to be transparent and owning it and being willing to go through the pain of his experiences. So it can be very rewarding. And I think sometimes we cut ourselves off when we don't allow ourselves to go through the healing journey and to do it in community with others who can understand the journey. The whole concept of community, especially in a time when we have to live our lives on Zoom (laughs) and platforms like this, how do you suggest for people to develop that community? I mean, because I'm thinking being present, you feel another person's energy, you get to kind of have a deeper sense of who they are and those connections can be made easily or I think easier than when we're Zooming. Yeah. Are there some things you could share? Definitely those, you know, nonverbal, verbal ways of communicating in person are starkly different. However, what I've learned is that people are more willing to delve into the dark areas when they're not around others. And so what would usually take maybe three or four sessions for them to start to feel comfortable to open up because it's just them one-on-one with the screen. You don't feel as real or tangible, but you feel like something that I can just pour into without feeling judged or, or having different facial expressions that would invalidate my experience. I mean, if you think about it, majority of the sin that is done in this world in this day and age is done via social media because there's no feeling of it being real or tangible, and people pour out those dark areas of their lives. Now, it can, of course, provide a hurdle for some, but what I've seen thus far is that people are even more willing to share, of course, because we have practices in line where confidentiality is preserved and all of that fun stuff, and we make sure we use HIPAA-compliant software and things like that, but I've not seen it provide a barrier for the pastors that I've worked with thus far. So that's been one-on-one, but what about as developing community? You still see the same result. I was speaking to the first shepherd's cohorts. So there's okay. the four or five people that are in a group okay. a night. And so a lot of the pastors around here kind of know each other anyway. So I already have that level of community, but I have not gone through it providing a barrier yet. Now, we have other ways of communicating, like we have a Facebook group page that's private. And so some people will kind of use that as a platform to continue connection. We have gift exchanges that go on where we either send letters or gifts to houses. So that creates a sense of of connection. 
And we just keep in touch. We just appointed a liaison, a community or clergy liaison. And she reaches out to different pastors that we've worked with through the cohorts to see how they're doing. And we're actually in the process of scheduling like a family reunion <laughs> for us all, whether oh, wow. or not it's going to be a Zoom. We're not sure yet, but so far, you know, God's still working as he does so greatly. So I think community is so important in any endeavor, especially when you're working with groups and you're touching on such sensitive areas Mm -hmm. that as barriers come down, then people, they feel that connectivity as others share empathy and that kind of thing. So awesome, awesome work. Here's a question for you, Kamish. For practitioners, Leaders who engage, you know, groups of folks, and I'll take Deborah for instance. She has a coaching practice, P3 Coaching. She does amazing work, but I can only imagine the weight of navigating and helping others navigate some of these dynamics. What would you say to folks who work in this space, who work with groups of folks individually or in small groups? Because you talked about your own self care. How would you advise or what words of wisdom and insight would you share with folks who who are trying to help others in this traumatic time? Well, the first thing is understanding that compassion fatigue or burnout is a real thing. (laughs) You can inadvertently experience uh, secondary traumatization or, you know, because you're bearing witness to some hard stories, some hard journeys. And so if you don't have an outlet to express those things, then you can be start to feel like you're pouring from an empty cup. And so it becomes very much about how do I prevent myself from going through the same ills? And we can't necessarily help others if we're not willing to really kind of delve in and help ourselves to be able to see others a little bit more clearly. And so, you know, just some of the self-care things like understanding that Sabbath rest is absolutely vital. We have to be willing to take a step back, take a break, take a vacation, take some time to do things that nourish your soul. Otherwise, we start to, you know, just try to take on the world and think that we're accomplishing things, but our inner lives can begin to erode. You know, God gives rest to those he loves. And so if our inability to rest or take time off becomes a, a detriment or, or becomes ignored, we go into a self-love deficit. That's the breeding ground for compassion fatigue. So so self-love deficit. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little more about that? <laughs> Where we become more about doing for God rather than being with God. We become almost robotic in nature, just kind of putting off those things that would pierce anybody from a psychological and emotional level. And so we start to largely neglect ourselves and we call it sacrificing for others for the sake of helping someone else, not realizing that slowly our inner lives are, you know, eroding. So we see self-love deficit when we start to see different character traits become out of alignment with the word of God. We start to see that when marriages start to fall apart. We start to see that when children start to seek out attention through numbing their own pain because they don't have access to you. And so it becomes very real, but it's all about learning how not to neglect yourself 
for the sake of the ministry work that you're doing? That's really a hard one because so often in churches, there's always so much to get done. Mm -hmm. And in the effort to accomplish that, we find ourselves, I've worked on two church staffs, working day and night because the people that we're trying to reach and minister to aside from Sunday are only available after work. And so mm -hmm. I'm administrative during the day at the church office, if I'm working there, and then I'm ministry focused on the needs of people, even when I'm doing Bible study or teaching a class or just meeting with someone because they can't come in until after five. And that run 24 seven. It's like nonstop. And there's nowhere in the structure of some churches to say, take a break. And there needs to be. Yes. If we're doing ministry, how God tells us to, or how Jesus tells us to, you know, Jesus rested. He took a moment and said, wait a minute, folks, y'all are too much. Let me go up here. <laughs> Let me get my mind back right. God rested on the seventh day. He considered it done. Now, it just so happens that God rests because it's done, not necessarily because it, he needs it. We, on the other hand, are limited in that capacity. And we have to recognize our limitations unless we'll start to try to overcome them and then overwork ourselves. But God gives us limits for reasons. They're, they're gifts. Not every limit is about how to surpass it. Some of it you have to surrender to and be okay with that. So a lot of times when people feel that 24-7 pull, it becomes about, well, what is my heart posture in this? What's making me feel like I have to take this on in the degree that I am right now? What's not allowing me to pull back and say, here's a boundary. I have to set it. And it's not because I don't want to get the work done. It's because I actually need it for my own self-preservation. And then it also becomes about not for you per se, but what's the agenda? Is the agenda the kingdom of God or is the agenda to build up the church? And I say that kind of elusively because I don't want to offend anyone. But, you know, a lot of times we get so focused on winning souls to Christ, it really becomes more about body snatchers. I just want to get as many people in as possible. <laughs> and so that's completely out of alignment with what the word of God is telling us with regards to bringing people to, into his kingdom and into his church. I can see that whole body snatching thing. That was great, man. I can see that like whoosh. <laughs> and then, you know, pastors become competitive on whose shirt's going to who and who belongs to what and how many members. And it's just like, wait a minute, surrender that because that's a heart posture that will end you up in a place where you'll start to feel like an imposter of sorts. Now it's a gradual degree up to that point. But if we don't surrender that and look at that and say, you know, if God is in it, it's going to grow. And so when, when people have issues like being people pleasers, mm. when they are so driven to achieve, to complete the things on the list, to look good in front of others, all of those things pour into that 24-7, I got to be here, I got to do this, I got to have my hand on it, as opposed to living from the perspective of 
God's purpose and his timing is what this is really all about. And so as I walk in that, then I'm going to take some time aside. Yeah. That's what Jesus did. Absolutely. You know, either God is God or he's not. And so it becomes about not attaching your ego to the outcome of a thing, but understanding that I'm going to walk the path that God gives me everything else. I'm going to surrender up to him because I know he's a provider and protector and he's going to do what is necessary to get everything else in alignment. As long as I try to keep my heart pure and edify myself, then I can only do what I can do. God didn't, in my opinion, I should say, he didn't say become all things so that I might win some because he wanted you to become everything to everyone at all times. That's a misunderstanding of, of the doctrine under which he was giving us that. It was if they do this custom in their house, abide by it so that they can learn to hear the way that you do things and why you do it. So we either have to believe that God is God and he's going to transcend and, and do or we can continue to function in ego. And so I want to put a disclaimer here. All of those things that I listed, that was my stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And and that was why I was trying to work 24-7 until I understood Mm -hmm. that I have to walk in the purpose of God and listen and hear his voice Mm -hmm. and be guided by what it is he's doing Mm -hmm. so that I'm in balance and Mm -hmm. I'm in step with him. Understanding that you are no longer a slave. Hey. And he made you his friend. Come on. Perfectly. So, yeah. so here's something that you dropped in the middle of the room, and I saw it. It is a crater where that thing landed. And I, you done messed me up. I'm trying to stay in my skin here. But you said limits as a gift. Mm. Whoa, wait a minute, right? Mm-hmm. And let's take a moment to help leaders with those that they lead understand that the people that they lead, that God has given them limits as gifts, understanding that it all works together to accomplish the thing that he wants to accomplish. Mm -hmm. How do we help leaders engage those that they lead with that understanding? Absolutely. Well, God's been setting limits since the beginning of time. He set day different from night. And so we have to realize that boundaries exist and they exist to keep us in an emotionally healthy place. That doesn't mean that we don't work to excel at a thing. We just have to remove this idea of perfectionism out of the scenario, right? And so leaders grab a hold of this concept when they understand that the limits actually open us up to a role where we become very focused on a thing. And anointing translated in my work is the ability to focus on one thing at one time and allow that to be the goal until it's time to set another goal. So understanding that by embracing our God-given limits, we are embracing the true thing that God has for us by becoming hyper-focused on that thing. Does that make sense? It's a bit of a nuanced concept. So There's a lot of layers to it. So one of the things I I heard when you were talking was that, so God has set limits from the beginning of time. And so day and night, if the sun was high in the sky, 24 hours a day, 
we would be trying to be out there in the sun 24 hours a day. And what that says to me is that the limit is set for you, but also it impacts those around you. Absolutely. Because we start to stretch ourselves too thin otherwise, right? Where, you know, we can't perform optimally in any one area of our life. And so we have to embrace it for what it is instead of what it is. You know, I once heard a, a motivational speaker tell, you know, an audience, we don't have time to sleep. And I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> we got to get up and hustle from 4 a.m. to midnight. And then we got to start it all over again. I'm thinking in my mind going, oh, they're going to be on my couch in a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> because our circadian rhythm, when we get that off, that's the majority of mental health issues born out of that. That's the majority of medical issues born out of that. And so it really does help for us to understand that we have limits. We have to rest. It can't always be about grind. And we have to learn how to focus on the things that God gave us versus all the things that we ourselves want to be able to accomplish. That's good right there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that just slows me down right now. Just that hit my spirit real good. <laughs> Freedom. Yes, right. yes, absolutely. So, we have three questions that we've been closing these conversations with. And one you've kind of shared about exercise being one of the things that you do. So the question is, what do you do to chill? So my chilling is literally like exercising. I have a prayer journal that I do throughout the year. So, you know, going into that, usually mid-October, I go into a season of surrenderance that I call it, where my life becomes about, you know, taking in devotions and slowly weaning off my schedule from seeing clients or taking different speaking engagements. And I just literally go into consecration mode. And so my chilling is with my family and with God. And it's at that time where I feel like I get filled up and prepared for the next year to come. And it's awesome. also the time where I look at that prayer journal and see for myself, what has been answered? What are the things that were born out of unhealthy part of my heart that guy was like, no. And then what areas he allowed me to go into? It was like, look, I ain't in it. And what happened as a result? So it's a great opportunity to self-reflect and just, you know, sit with those lessons with my family and pour into them. So. Awesome. Awesome. Second question. <laughs> what are you listening to as it relates to music? What's in your ear? So. I really love whalers. <laughs> I am a fan of whaling music. A lot of times comes in the form of worship music. So I love the live performances by a Miranda Curtis or mm -hmm. Natasha Cobbs. Yes. I forget the guy's name, but he sings this song called Yahweh. And it's literally just him wailing throughout the song. And that hits my soul. Since I was a kid, I've always just loved the worshiping experience and hearing that. Cool, cool. Last question. What are you reading? We know you're writing, <laughs> but what are you reading? Outside of my daily devotions and my Bible. Right now I'm working on three different books and I do that to myself sometimes, but the one that stands out most is, I think it's called Spiritual Wholeness mm -hmm. for Clergy. 
and it helps you to learn how to integrate theological principles with psychological concepts. And so I've read it once before, but I love to kind of go back through it and review and understand and also contrast it with the things that I'm putting in my book. So awesome. Awesome. This time has been just a true blessing. Thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing a little bit about your life and your work with us today. Absolutely. So before we go, can you share some ways that people can find you, get in contact with you. Part of some conversations that we've had is ways to expand the scope of who you're able to reach and to serve. And so what are ways people can find you? Absolutely. So you can reach us on on our website, which is healingyourhiddenhurts.com. Hurts with the S. You can also reach our first shepherds program with healing hurtsministries.org. And then also we're on Facebook under facebook.com backslash first shepherds. That's our official page. And if all else fails, reach out to us by 833-349-1116 or email us at info at healingyourhiddenhurts.com. Nice, nice. Okay. So before we go, parting thoughts leaders in distress, Mm. what would you say? One of the things that we have to understand that is that we have to know how to lead ourselves first. God put everything in us apart from this world that we need to survive, thrive, and overcome. And we have to learn how to look inward if we're going to function well outwardly. i tell you what, (laughs) there's a lot of meat in there. (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you so much again, Kamish, for sharing your time with us. We understand that there's tremendous value of time, and we don't take it for granted that you have shared some of your time with us. Not only that, but your wisdom, your insight, and your life experience. So as we close, it's Real Life Podcast, where our heartbeat is real hope, real love, real, real life. life. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.